Praise the Lord. What a glorious privilege we have today to consider God's holy word. In a minute, I'll ask you to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Our text today will be in Genesis 6.18. We'll we'll cover again, we'll overlap a bit of our text last time we were in Genesis, and then we will continue on into new material. Genesis 6.18 through 7.16 will be uh, the central text today under this title, Noah in Context. I want, to, I want us to consider this morning the account of the great flood, the testimony and calling of Noah, the appointment of him as an instrument for the salvation of his people and the future uh, seed of the new world, the animals and so forth on his ark. I want us to consider that in light of its scriptural context. The meaning and the power, the significance of this account is manifold as you take it in its context immediately. That means right in its passage that we'll read today. And more broadly, that is in the scope of all the rest of Scripture. The aim of this morning's message in light of this is to show that the judgments of a sovereign God stand or fall with Noah's flood. So what is the main point at issue here? To the degree that Noah's flood is true or false, to the degree that God, as He is revealed in Noah's flood, stands or falls in our consciousness, so does the power of a sovereign God to judge sinners. The fact that God is holy and he can do something about sin, stands or falls with the account of Noah's flood. I believe that is a testimony of Scripture, and I'll seek to show that today. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word this morning? And let us consider in our hearing the infallible Scriptures beginning in Genesis 6.18 through 7.16. Hear now the holy word of God. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Verse 21, also take with you, every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, for it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him, 7-1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of clean animals, the male and his mate, a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heaven also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Verse 11. And in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell on the earth, Forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, 
And the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. Verse 15, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was breath and life. Final verse, 16. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. As I was reading that text, which is a little longer than we often consider in the course of a message, but there's a reason for it, I wonder if you notice a pattern. There are four sections there that are basically a recapitulation, which means a repeat, of an account of Noah. So you have the command of God, the obedience of Noah entering the ark. That basic pattern is repeated more or less four times in our text. And four times the accounts or that recapitulation closes with a reference to Noah's obedience. So we see, we pointed this out last time, but we see a little bit more clearly this definite pattern in our text. Verse 22, Noah did this, he did all that the Lord commanded him. That's after this first kind of commandment of what is going to take place, Noah's duty in light of the coming flood, and then and so forth. And then verse 5. Again, we have a recapitulation, and then it says, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So we have the Word of God, the obedience of Noah. Our last message was titled, Heeding the Word of God, as I recall, because it, or Heeding God's Word, because it points out that this was a central theme. Noah as a covenant head for his family, and as the obedient servant of the Lord, righteous among his generation, is following God's command. He's heeding, that is to say, listening and obeying God's Word. And then a third time, this is referenced in verse 9, two by two, male and female went into the ark as with Noah, or with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. Once again, verse 9. And then our final time, making four references to the obedience of Noah and the recapitulation of this event is verse 16. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, or as God had commanded him. And then the last phrase, and the Lord shut him in. So why do we see this pattern? Well, this is Noah in context. There are reasons why the Bible records information as we have it in our text today, and that's what we'll get to today. Primarily, I want to make the case that this is to show that the judgments of a sovereign God are absolutely important, fundamental to our understanding of God's Word, central to our understanding of God and His world, and we lose them at our own peril. With them stands or falls the continuity of revelation. We won't understand the significance, the intent of Scripture without affirming the judgments of God as they, are, they themselves are affirmed in the text as we have it today and as we see it in the broader context of Scripture. As we consider the Genesis account and the great flood in context, both immediately in these verses that I just read and as a jewel, as it were, strung upon the necklace of redemptive history, so I mentioned that analogy to you in the past. Think of uh, history, time measured by the progress of redemption as a chain. And then upon that chain, like a necklace, you have jewels. And every time the Bible pauses to record an event, it's a jewel that features, displays, showcases God's plan to glorify Himself in and through the salvation of man. And so Noah fits right on that chain and his account here. It becomes apparent then that Noah's testimony, his calling, and his experience are of central significance in the Scriptures. Indeed, we find this is true uh, as we seek the greater context of Scripture as well. The flood account and its implications are an indispensable foundation stone for a Christian and biblical worldview. 
The account of Noah's flood, his testimony and calling are an indispensable foundation stone for the Christian worldview. It is that serious. The particular emphasis given to these events cuts against the grain of modern assumptions. And some of those can come in this form. This this is a story people tell us today that is merely culturally important. Some might claim it doesn't really matter if these events occurred or not in real time. Its importance is found in that this provided a myth, a social cohesion, a shared belief that provided a cultural or ethnic identity for the ancient Hebrews. So merely cultural importance, some might say, the significance of the account of the great flood. This is false. The Bible does not affirm this conclusion. This comes from a perverted, secular, uh, quasi-scholarly understanding of this literature that we have in the Bible, fails to realize the nature and character of God's Word in the first place, and comes up with this short-sighted view that compromises the true intent and meaning of Noah's flood in the process. Okay, so that's the first, uh, perhaps, faulty interpretation. The story is not merely culturally important for the social cohesion of Hebrew identity, the way other myths provided meaning and common interest for any old ethnic group, nation, or tribe. According to the context of Scripture, this would be a gross misreading of the significance of Genesis chapters 6 through 9. As such, it becomes clear, according to Scripture, that we minimize or recast this account at the cost of losing its central purpose. That is to say, anyone who holds that this is merely a mythological account that provides an important, albeit, identity for the people at that time, but doesn't necessarily have to be true or is not necessarily true, if you hold this view, you will lose the central purpose of the account on its, surface, on its face, on its self-disclosure, the reason why the Bible says these words appear as they do why this account appears in the Word of God. If we dismiss the events of Genesis 6-9 through as an embellished local flood story, or reason away the supernatural element, or interpret this account through the lens of, quote, natural sciences, thereby presupposing them as a greater authority than the self-attesting Word of God, we will surely miss the point, and we will misrepresent the testimony of Scripture. A little word of... For to help you in your discernment, a little word of warning as you, as a believer, seeking to hold a Christian and biblical worldview, things you need to be aware of when you encounter an unbelieving world. So the question remains, what is so important and indispensable about the great flood? What is the message of Noah's, the events of Noah's life and the world as he, uh, the world that he was born into, the world that he lived through? Why the time and detail, why the four-part recapitulation, as we've already noticed, of this story in context? Why the time and detail spared for its documentation in the Genesis record? This morning, we'll let the context speak for itself. And let me introduce to you a heading then to answer this question. Three major themes drawn from multiple flood references. Our first references will be from the text we've just read, and then as we move through our message, will seek to draw other references from the greater testimony of Scripture. Three major themes drawn from multiple flood references. Number one, covenantal faithfulness. This overlaps our last message. Number two, sovereign historicity. That is, God is sovereign, and these events happened in real time. Thirdly, inevitable judgment. The flood account speaks of inevitable judgment. That is, judgment 
that cannot be escaped, and we'll elaborate in process, at least cannot be escaped ultimately speaking, unless a substitute Savior who absorbs that judgment you deserve is provided. Major themes drawn from multiple flood references. First of all, covenant faithfulness. As we've already remarked, we have featured in our text today the faithfulness of Noah, or you could say the faith of Noah. Turn with me as a cross-reference to Hebrews chapter 11. Do you think the author of Hebrews considered the account of Noah to be absolutely true and significant as recorded history, as a jewel, as it were, strung upon the chain of events recorded according to God's plan for the glorification of Himself and the salvation of man? You better believe it. Notice in Hebrews 11:7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah had faith that the word of God, that there was huge, wide-scale, sweeping, global judgment to come, that that was a reality. Noah had faith in the word of God. And because he heeded God's word, he was accounted among the righteous ones. Thus, we have his testimony in Hebrews eleven seven. If the events did not occur, the testimony of Noah's faithfulness fails. So Noah's faithfulness stands or falls upon the reality, the truth of God's word. Noah would be placing faith in a fairy tale, that is to say, or if these events were not true, then there wouldn't really be any judgment to fear, especially for the world at that time. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. If Noah's testimony to God's word that, that there is a wrath to come and there's one way to escape it, if that was not true, then Noah's testimony held out no ultimate message of condemnation, God's wrath-deserving sin, in the form of whole-scale judgment for His generation. But it did. Therefore, the testimony of Scripture stands and the testimony of Noah stands. And ultimately, the testimony of the gospel stands. The message of the great flood is that God has the right and the prerogative and He absolutely will judge all the unbelieving world for their sin. We call that, ultimately speaking, final judgment. And so the message of Scripture is, if this event did not take place in time, then the testimony of that final judgment to come is also questionable. It did take place in time, and therefore you know by the testimony of this world that still bears the scars, and obviously so, of a global flood, that there is judgment to come. So the faith of Noah is testimony, or is testified to in these events, 622, 7.5, 7.10, 7.16. Each time these references speak to Noah's obedience. This theme retraces some ground from our last message in Genesis and highlights the obedience of Noah. As such, he was faithful as a covenant head. Noah demonstrated covenantal faithfulness. We mentioned that because Noah was faithful as a leader for his family, as a steward of the animals, and as, a leader, and as the hope for future generations, the blessings of his covenant faithfulness extend even to us today. Because the global flood really did occur, occur you and I would not be alive if it wasn't for the obedience and the covenantal faithfulness of Noah, who obeyed God's word, heeded God's word, and through his testimony was thus a blessing to the seven other members of his family 
and to all of the world that would be repopulated after the ark had landed. Here we are today. Do you see that the Noahic flood, the testimony of these events, is central to your understanding of history, is part and parcel to your correct Christian worldview? Absolutely. The faith of Noah. Noah took God's word, God at His word, and he did so in spite of the protestations, the mockery and the scorn, the contravening culture of worldly unbelief surrounding him. He did all that the Lord commanded him, even though all his neighbors, aside from his family, thought he was stupid for sure. This reiterates the value of his testimony. When we take his testimony out of context, we diminish its value. Value of his testimony is it demonstrates covenant faithfulness, and as we mentioned last time, it was a picture of the faithfulness of a covenant had to come. Jesus Christ is covenantally faithful to the way of salvation. He prepares in Himself the instrument of salvation that will save us from the wrath to come. Just as there was only one way for people to be saved from the global flood, so as we talked about uh, young people in our study this morning, there's only one way, truth, and life to be, to be spared from the judgment to come. We'll see this in context in 2 Peter later in closing. But the testimony of Noah's faithfulness speaks to the testimony of Christ's faithfulness, the Noah to come, if you will, who in his ark, that is himself, all who are in him, are spared the judgment they deserve. And that judgment is worldwide, yes, indeed. It is transhistorical. It is global in scale. It will affect all who do not place their faith in God's way of salvation. So the faith of Noah is testified to, and that's a major theme in the flood narrative. Secondly, and more importantly, the faithfulness of God. Notice 6.18, this covenant is established not by Noah, it's not his idea. It doesn't come from his cultural heritage. It doesn't come from the collective ideas that they treasure as a people. It comes from special revelation from the Word of God Himself. The Lord says, in His, in his own words, first person, in the first person speaking, 6.18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, uh, your sons' wives with you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, excuse me. So there we have the source and the origination, the ground of this covenant. It is God's idea. It is God's plan. It is God laying out and detailing the relationship that He will establish with His people, who namely at this time were Noah and his family. This is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of Noah is predicated on the faithfulness of God. If God not, had not made a way of salvation, if God had not affected Noah's heart, if God had not, by the power of His Spirit, awakened Noah to the reality of the truth that He had revealed, if God had not given Noah the grace to be obedient, then there would not have been any covenant that would have been fulfilled. But uh, the faithfulness of Noah speaks, in fact, to the faithfulness of God. Now think of this. God kept His promise for 120 years, near as we can tell, while the ark was being constructed. God, this promise was assured through the entire construction phase of Noah's ark. And at the time when Noah finally boarded, we see twice in our text that there was seven more days. This is noted in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 4. For in seven days after Noah boards the ark, the Lord says, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, every living thing, that he has made, goes on to say, will be blotted out. Later, he says in verse 10, and after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. The faithfulness of God. He says, I will establish my covenant, considering, cons or coinciding with Noah's obedience, this is the promise of salvation 
realized each step of Noah's journey. The rains wait for the completion of the ark. And in God's grace, the faithfulness of God even provides an additional seven-day grace period, if you will, for repentance. For any who would, like Noah, heed the word of God to repent and to believe and to embrace God's instrument of salvation. And if they did, God would prove faithful to His own covenant, and they would have been spared alongside Noah and his family in the ark. They did not, hence they were judged. Nevertheless, his message of covenant faithfulness culminates, as we continue to read in the text, with the rainbow promise. Turn over to chapter 9. God says in verse 12, This is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Young people, what is the sign of the covenant whereby God's promised Noah and everyone else, he would never flood the earth with a global flood again. What's the sign of the rainbow? Has anyone seen a rainbow lately? So the other day, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, I was talking to Israel or something, and I said, I'll bet you there's a rainbow outside because you guys know those days where the rain's still coming down and suddenly the sun is bright, so we stepped outside. And uh, suddenly the family text thread was lit with beautiful pictures. I've never seen such a dramatic display in with my own eyes of the very thing that God established as a sign for all to view under such conditions, that promise He will never flood the earth again. It was so beautiful and so resplendent that this rainbow <coughs> had like an aura, halo of colors on either side of it. Just amazing. Commentators have noted, note this, that the term for bow in the Hebrew is related, if not can be used interchangeably, with the implement of war. Like, a, imagine a bow. Imagine that bow drawn. What's the shape? It's basically an arc. So that bow has an arrow knocked in the string. Now, if we see the uh, rainbow as a bow of God's judgment, which way is the arrow aimed? Would it be aimed towards earth or would it be aimed towards heaven? Heaven or away from the earth would be a better way to say it. That's correct. So when you look at a rainbow, think of this. Think of the bow of God's judgment drawn where once it was aimed at the earth in a global flood, now He has promised, I will never do that again, and now His judgment is aimed away from the earth uh, with respect to this particular kind of whole-scale destruction. It's a cool way to add another imagery, a picture, analogy, to what the meaning of that rainbow in the, sky, in the skies uh, uh, represents. So anyway, all this to say that God is covenantally faithful. Has there ever been a global flood since Noah's day? No. And each year that passes without another worldwide deluge or flood is a marker of God's faithfulness to His promise. Three major themes drawn from multiple flood references, covenantal faithfulness, that's the first. Secondly, sovereign historicity. God is sovereign. He is over all. He is... Uh, in control. He is the one who providentially guides, guards His promises, and sees them out, superintends them, fulfills them in time. God is the Lord. Jesus is Lord of history. He's the author of history. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the sovereign of history. There are no events that lie outside of His decree, His promise, His purposes. God has purposes in all things to glorify Himself. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. This is the consistent testimony of this particular event. Now, we referenced four times the, um, in just our original text this morning how the account of Noah's salvation from this coming judgment is repeated. 
Imagine if you're taking notes and you have a phrase that is really central to understand the concept of the lecture or whatever you're listening to, the sermon, let's say. So you go over that with your pen four times until it's dark. Or imagine taking a highlighter and there's a phrase in a book that really encapsulates the theme of the whole. And you take that highlighter and you uh, really um, draw attention to that particular key phrase. Now, when the Bible repeats something, it's a way of doing this. It's a literary way of drawing attention to something very important. So I submit to you the fact that these basic instructions for Noah and the record of his obedience is repeated four times is Scripture's way of highlighting the importance of this event. And what does it tell us? It tells us that God is sovereign over history. There are four recapitulations of initial flood events in our text today that we've gone over. This is how it is structured, each overlapping the last in time sequence and advancing yet further documentation. This speaks to what we said before, you know, why such time and detail spared for the documentation of the flood in the Genesis record. The fact that this event is stated in this recapitulated form speaks to its importance. The author, Moses, more, and above him, the Holy Spirit, is highlighting this event so that you remember it, so it's etched upon your consciousness. It is important and central to your worldview. Understanding the Lord and His purposes for His world and for you, His plan of salvation on into the future. As I mentioned, each time the account overlaps, it advances further documentation. Moses is thereby signaling the importance of these events. And he is anticipating the great flood's purpose as a, quote, event oracle. And that's my term that I've developed to give a quick phrase to describe things that happened in real history, but also preach to us God's Word. They are, you could say, perhaps an event oracle. The flood, I submit, is one of those. It was an event that happened in time by God's sovereign purposes, but it also preaches God's Word of events yet to come. This uh, happens from time to time throughout Scripture, and we'll see in the course of the Scripture's record how this is borne out, how the purposes of God illustrated in the flood event speak to His purposes that continue through history and more events uh, that came along the way and events that are yet to happen in the future. So along the lines of sovereign historicity, note, verses 18 through 22, this first account of these initial flood events, they highlight God's word and promise, God's covenant and His promise to His servant Noah and those who are in Him, if you will. Second, 7, 1 through 5 that we've read, they emphasize further details, including future glory. They reference that clean animals will be preserved in the ark along with unclean. What is the purpose of this? It's revealed to us later in chapter 8. Among these clean animals will be sacrifices, sacrifices that is to acknowledge the purposes of God in the saving of His people, that is, no one will be saved without a substitute sacrifice offered. That also is to say, that it also is to show that God saves His people for His glory. God is preserving His people to worship Him, to testify to Him. Therefore, it is an appropriate act when you set your feet on dry land after this global flood that you praise the Lord by offering unto Him sacrifices of praise that He has spared you by His grace alone through His instrument of salvation, according to His covenant faithfulness. And we have the third in our text, our immediate text today, 7, 6 through 10. This emphasizes further 
Noahic legacy. Noah was 600 years old. And when he was saved, this speaks to a particular moment in his life, a hinge pin, a significant event, I should say, not only for him personally and his family, but for all of earth history. Hence, it is noted in the text. And this is only expanded and expounded in the fourth recapitulation, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep, deep burst forth. So you see, whenever there's a memorial moment in the history of any people, they will mark the date and they will uh, often initiate you know, certain factors or certain festivals sometimes so that they don't forget it. This was true of the Exodus. You remember Exodus chapter 12? The Passover feast is instituted. Why? So that the people do not forget the significance of this moment. And God, through Moses, tells the people, when your children ask you, what is the purpose of this meal, this Passover lamb and so forth? Why are we doing this today? You tell them that it was by God's sovereign saving hand, by the offering of a substitute sacrifice, the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, and that blood upon the doorpost, that you were saved from the tyranny you deserved under the wicked one, Pharaoh in Egypt, which is a picture of salvation for us. And why does it have eternal meaning? Because it is a picture, even for us today, we still celebrate a version of it instituted by Christ in communion Jesus, our Passover land, who shed blood, saves us from the wicked one, namely Satan and our sin. So, like, in, in like manner then, there, uh, Moses records this event by repeating the initial events of the flood over and over. So, as if to say, do not forget this moment. It is significant. Tell it to your children. It's part of Noah's legacy and the legacy of all mankind to come. Noah's family is saved and his progeny owes their salvation to these moments that we witness in our text today. And then the fourth recapitulation speaks furthermore to natural history. Notice how specifics are given in this account, and they're even expounded in the rest of the chapter. How did this event take place? Fountains of the great deep burst forth, windows of heaven were open, rain fell 40 days and 40 nights. Highly specific, detailed, yea, may I add, scientific language to give an account of what's going on. More particulars and more uh, schematics or uh, uh, what would you say, specific accounting measurements of this event take place in verses 17 and following. As the flood continues 40 days um, on the earth, the waters increase, they bear up the ark, it rises high above the earth. The waters prevail, they increase greatly on the earth, the ark floats over the face of the waters, the waters prevail so mightily on the earth, we read in verse 19, that all the high mountains over the whole earth were covered. Verse 20 tells us by a distance of 15 cubits deep. These are highly specific um, notations in the text, indicating to us the sovereignty of God over history. This took place when Noah was 600 years old. This took place on the 17th day of the month and so forth, the second month of Noah's 600th year. This took place in a way so as to cover the earth with exactly enough water to cover the highest of mountain peaks by 15 cubits. This took place by two sources, major sources in the natural realm of water, that which poured forth from the heavens, as it were, that which sprung forth from the earth. And by these means, the earth obeyed the commandment of the Lord to judge all the wicked generation in that day in this one cataclysmic event. A major theme that we can take away from this is God is sovereign and history bows to His decree. God is sovereign and history bears out His plan, His plans of judgment, 
and its plans of salvation. Final point this morning. Major themes drawn from multiple flood references. Covenantal faithfulness, sovereign historicity, finally, inevitable judgment. There is judgment that is inescapable for sin. Greater Scripture testifies to this, and this is where I'd like to close this morning. Perhaps we'll cover two passages. I actually picked out four, but time will afford us to maybe focus a little bit more time on two of them. Flood as a judgment event oracle. So this is evidence that the flood is, as I said before, an event oracle. It is something that happened in time, but it tells us the truth about God's will and God's Word. So two references for you from the Old Testament you can study on your time. Isaiah 54, 9 through 11. Noah's uh, account is referenced in context here. This follows, it's a picture of salvation. uh, And it follows the picture of a Savior prophesied in Isaiah 53, that famous chapter which is full of messianic prophecy. Isaiah 54, 1 we referenced recently from our Galatians series because it's cited in Galatians 4.27, the promise that the children of the once barren woman would eclipse the, uh, the children of the naturally fruitful woman, which is a picture that against all odds, God's promises come true and will be fulfilled in time. The days of Noah are referenced by Scripture authors such as Isaiah, and, they, and he does so uh, through the course, or, and, and they do so through the course of redemptive history to underscore and to certify the judgments of God and to point out the one exclusive narrow way of salvation. And this is the context of Isaiah 54. Salvation is via or by means of the covenant. Inevitable judgment is absorbed by another in Isaiah 53. In other words, there would be absolute, total, ultimate, whole-scale judgment for every one born in Adam every sinner, because we deserve it, and the wrath of God, His holiness demands it. However, in Isaiah 53 was prophesied, one who would absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. He, in His death in the grave, it was a picture of the drowning death of old. That is to say, when Jesus was buried in the grave, in the heart of the earth, as it were, He took the drowning death, if you will, that we deserved. This is why judgment is inevitable. Judgment will come upon one, either the qualified substitute sacrifice, Jesus Christ alone, or by those who reject that only means of salvation. Isaiah 53 prophesies the sacrifice. Isaiah 54 alludes to the narrow way of salvation in the context of Noah to illustrate that just like in Noah's day, the ark saved those who trusted in God's word, heeded God's word, So Christ to come will save a remnant from apostate Israel. Salvation is by covenant. So second example, Ezekiel 14, 12 through 21. Here, whole-scale judgment is prophesied over the nation. And there are three references, Noah, Job, and Daniel, that the author alludes to, to make his point. And what's uh, you know, if you ask the question, what do those three have in common? I wonder what your answer would be. Anyone want to venture a try? What do Noah, Job, and Daniel have in common? Anybody? It's kind of a probing question. Any ideas? Maybe what's one for the adults? They're all faithful under unique circumstances. Um, they, so uh, I, w- I would say, yes, that's correct, and then extend it to say each one was faithful in light of a context which was generally unfaithful. So Job 
stood alone in his sufferings, nearly rejected by all as an extreme test. Daniel was one of just a handful of righteous men in exile in Babylon. Noah alone and his family was righteous among his generation. So anyway, that reference is alluded to by Ezekiel to proclaim the type of judgment that is to be expected, and he's using it as a figure of speech to say, even if these three guys were here, they would save no one but themselves. And so there again, the context of the veracity of Noah's experience, whether or not there was judgment that was deserving, whether or not the flood actually did enact the Lord's will on wicked man, thus the language and the point of Ezekiel stands or falls according to the aim of this message, to show that the judgments of a sovereign God stand or fall with the account of Noah's flood. And now let's get to the New Testament. Knees, I'll have you turn to Matthew 24 will be the first. The event oracle of Noah's judgment is used by our Lord to make a point about judgment that will come with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, but again, as an event oracle of judgment yet to come. Matthew 24, you may be familiar with this text, verse 36 and following, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Do you see that? As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. According to the Bible, the judgments of a sovereign God stand or fall with the account of Noah. Okay, For as in those days, verse 38... Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You see, our Lord Jesus, God in flesh, Himself is testifying to the veracity, to the truth of the Noahic account of the worldwide, the great flood. And He also says that this is a picture of God's judgment, and it is an oracle. It speaks of judgments yet to come. Verse 40. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Verse 42, admonition. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. The wicked world did not expect the coming days of judgment in the flood of Noah. And so the wicked world, if they do not repent and heed God's holy word, they will be surprised by God's future judgments. Judgments of a sovereign God stand or fall with Noah's account. So we see in Isaiah 54, salvation by a covenant. Ezekiel 14, whole-scale judgment. Uh, Matthew 24, the day of the Lord is uh, according to the pattern of Noah's flood. Noah's flood, that is to say, serves as an archetype, as a pattern to understand the coming judgments, the appointed time for God and His holiness to pour out His wrath on the unrepented wicked, and so ensues uh, the events that, that will follow. And the final reference this morning is in 2 Peter 3. Again, a text that may be familiar to you. The flood of Noah's day is invoked by the apostle as an event oracle, if you will, to help us understand God's purposes in history and expectations for the future. This particular reference also is very poignant because it points out and condemns views to the contrary. 2 Peter 3, 1. Let's begin in verse 2. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets 
and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. Let me ask you, what is the motivation of the scoffers? Why do people disregard God's Word? Why do they scoff and dismiss and think it's fairy tales and myth that Noah's great flood occurred or didn't occur? Why? What's, what are they motivated by? Unbelief, that's true. Specifically in our text today, what are they following? They're following their own sinful desires. Notice, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, furthermore, verse 4, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. So instead of taking the account of God's Word seriously, they're offering an alternative explanation, okay? Motivated by sinful desires, alternative explanation, we continue. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, means flooded, with water and perished. You see, in the words of Paul, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They're putting their fingers over their eyes. Any of you kids been a brat to your brother or sister before? They're telling you something you don't want to hear. And you shove your fingers in your ears and you say, blah, 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 nah, 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 nah. And you just make incoherent babbling sounds to drown out what they're saying to you. This is a perfect picture of what scoffers do, of what unbelievers do. The Word of God proclaims to them that there is a judgment to come, and the Pacific Ocean is proof of it. The Atlantic Ocean is proof of it. The Indian Ocean is proof of it. But they look upon the landscape of the oceans of the earth, and do they fear a God who could drown them in an instant? No. They shove their fingers in their ears, and they say, blah, 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 I'm not listening, I can't hear you. They are scoffers. They are suppressing truth and unrighteousness. They are deliberately overlooking the facts of Scripture. And then Peter goes on to say, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So you see, again, the judgments of a sovereign God stand or fall with the account of Noah's flood. Peter is saying, just like we can verify that God who is true to His Word has the power to judge and did so in Noah's day, there's coming a judgment. You better enter the ark of Jesus Christ while there yet remains a, quote, or a, so to speak, seven-day grace period because God's patience won't endure forever. If you don't believe in the flood, if you don't believe in the Word of God, if it's a myth or if it's fiction to you, then you won't heed the call to repent for there is future judgment. But if you take seriously this evidence from the Word in God's world of His power to judge, then the gospel will ring in your ears as it ought to, a siren sound of deafening doom if you don't get into the ambulance, as it were. If you don't get into the ark, Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness, but is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why does the Lord wait? Is it because He's not sovereign? No. The Lord waits because in His faithfulness, long-suffering, kindness, steadfast love, patience, redemptive purposes. He has more yet to save 
from the world before the ark door closes by His sovereign hand, as it were. The message, the major theme drawn from multiple flood references is inevitable judgment. Salvation by a covenant alone, whole-scale judgment, the archetype, archetype of the day of the Lord, and in the words of Peter, it's a final judgment pattern. Notice, I referenced this, but let's go over it. The scoffers are number one, those who disregard the flood of Noah and God's word with it. They're first motivated by their own sinful desires. That's the reason why they stop their ears and blind themselves willfully to the truth that is so obvious. They want to continue in their sin. They don't want to reckon for their wickedness. They won't bow their knee to their Savior. Secondly, they deny the supernatural, claiming natural processes alone account for all reality. So they say, all things have continued now the way they've always continued, right? An alternative theory? No. The earth wasn't flooded back in the day. No, Darwinian evolution accounts for the way things are over millions and billions and whatever, years. Um, All natural processes continue today as they once did. This accounts for reality as we know it. You see what they're doing? In the words of Peter, they're denying, this is absolutely true of our day as it was then, they're denying the supernatural, claiming natural processes account for anything. They're offering a substitute reality. Thirdly, they deliberately dismiss the historical significance, the historicity and significance of the great flood, related idea. And fourthly, by these means, they seek ground to deny the ultimacy of God's judgments. In conclusion, what am I saying here? What I am telling you, when you put these dots together, is most major quasi-scientific or scholarly disciplines, if they are unredeemed, they exist to advance man in his sin and justify him not repenting before a sovereign God. I wrote, just uh, kind of inspired by some of these thoughts today, as the uh, dots were being connected in my own mind, I I wrote this little bit uh, by way of essay. The chaotic sea, now in ancient cultures, the chaotic sea was something to fear. And there's a reason for this. It was imprinted upon the collective consciousness of ancient cultures, the universal symbol of fearful catastrophe and intractable fate. It was testifying to the great flood of Noah and its cultural memory among all surviving descendants of Noah, even if they did not place their faith in God. In other words, there was a time globally when the worldview acknowledged the fate that the oceans represent. They all had virtually an account of the great flood in their past. They may not have known the way of salvation, but they acknowledged that they were, uh, that they could, there was no way that they could survive <clears throat> the mighty sea. The sea represented fearful catastrophe. This testified to the great flood of Noah and its cultural memory among the peoples of the earth. Now, you contrast this with the colossal effort in the modern era. Darwinism, secularism of our modern era exists to erase the evidence of the judgments of God from the worldview of modern man. That is the motive force behind most academic disciplines in this area. They exist to erase the evidence of the judgments of God from the consciousness, from the understanding, from the worldview of modern man. These are the ulterior motives and controlling biases behind naturalistic explanations proposed for creation and for the post-flood world. Nearly every uh, discipline along these lines falls into this category, a few technical names. Uh, geology, paleontology, geology, study of the earth and its uh, movements and systems and so forth, uh, 
and the, and the lay of the land. Paleontology, the study of dead things via their fossil record. Uh, hydrology, the study of water movements and the history of those forces on the earth. Uh, the study of geography or geology dealing with the study of the material existence or a uh, matter of rocks, you know, layers, strata, and so forth. Geology, the lay of the land. Uh, taxonomy, then uh, different species, differences that we see in the record of the uh, creaturely world. Uh, eco and, and if you could, you could go on and on, but basically in all of these areas, every ecological anomaly or natural system, natural system, if we did not have the blinders of our sinful quasi-scientific uh, worldview altering perspective on, all of these speak clearly, boldly, obviously, perspicuously to a world that survived a global flood. However, a whole-scale rejection of the implications of such obvious evidence is the sinful impulse of the apostate West, of the whole world, in fact, some degree in their unbelief. Therefore, an alternative explanation must be preferred and propagated, utilizing the platform of all these ostensible objective disciplines. So they appeal to the authority of these disciplines to say, we have good reason, basically, if you underlie, in the underlying motives, to deny a sovereign God and His judgments. By appeal to this authority, the account of global history is conveniently reconstructed to avoid the call to repentance and the fear of God that shouts from the globe all over the place. Again, the account of global history in the eyes of secular academia, it's conveniently reconstructed to avoid the call to repentance and the fear of the Lord that shouts from the ragged peaks of every mountain range. It proclaims that the Lord is sovereign and holy and to be feared from the unfathomable depths of subterranean, can, uh, subterranean canyons or whatever the word is for underneath the ocean. The horizon after horizon, transoceanic expanse, just the sheer breadth of the oceans, it proclaims that God is a God to be feared and there is a judgment to come. The boiling rock that spews forth from the volcanic bowels of the earth, it says, repent and turn from your sin. And place your faith in a God who can save you. Otherwise, you will be destroyed by forces like these. Reference throughout Scripture demonstrates the true message of the great flood. Yet it is obscured by the self-deception of our day, which offers an endless supply of distortions in virtually every area of life. And what are they seeking to do? They're manufacturing plausible deniability, they think, to disregard the judgments of a sovereign God. This is what's going on in our world today. And the Word of God gives you tools to recognize this and deal with it. Now, there are incredible hopeful signs on the horizon, and it's amazing how shaky this foundation of God denial actually is in our world today. One example, in 2016 in November, the quote, uh, Royal Society met, and this is a symposium of scientists, so-called experts in the field of all these kinds of things, Darwinian evolution, biology, you know, cosmology, the origins of the earth, and so forth. They all met to discuss a real big crisis in their field. Can you guess what that is? It's the basically recognizing the death of the vitality or the explanatory power of the neo-Darwinian construct. In other words, the idea that everything that we see today evolved by natural processes is broken. In the technical fields, it's virtually dead. In epigenetics, in other fields, and so forth, you can't make any scientific advances unless you presuppose that there is a designer 
that there is an information source that governs the systems inside the biology of the human being. In fact, uh, governs all, all, all systems throughout the entire cosmos, the universe as we know it. And so this is a huge crisis. And uh, Stephen Meyer, he's one of the top biologists in this field. He happens to be a believer and proposes uh, a theory uh, labeled intelligent design to account for this. Even this relative, relatively innocuous uh, point um, strikes fear in the scientific conventions of our day. So top biologists met at this Royal Society in London to discuss uh, new trends in evolutionary theory. It's becoming more and more obvious that the neo-Darwinian paradigm is in crisis. This is throwing the scientific community into what Stephen Meyer calls a metaphysical panic. Listen carefully. Conventional scientists are seeking to maintain current textbook orthodoxy with respect to evolutionary biology until a sufficient naturalistic counter-explanation can be proposed. Their fear is that if wide-scale admission of the explanatory deficit, meaning the inability of evolution to account for the world as we know it, if that got out into the popular culture, in the popular understanding, these shortcomings that are endemic to the so-called orthodox view, if that were publicized, then the intelligent design community you could include as a subset under that, perhaps, Christians hold to God's Word and creationism. The intelligent design community proponents would overtake the scientific fields in influence and intellectual prominence. So do you gather what's going on here? The textbooks, if you go to a public school, if you are taught in basic biology and so forth in our schools today, even the secular biologists, experts in the field, the globe over, they admit... When it comes to the real objective measures in the lab and in the field, the old way of explaining it, it doesn't hold any water anymore. We all know it. But you know what? We're not going to change the textbooks. We're going to keep that there because if the, if the secret gets out that the world, uh, uh, that the worldly explanation for the origin of life as we know it and the world as we see it, if that gets out to the popular opinion and the, and the popular knowledge, of those who, you know, attend public school or educated at uh, a university and so forth, we just might lose our influence and Christianity, uh, creationism, and intelligent design proponents will overtake us. We will look foolish and their ideas will advance. So let's keep the textbooks as they are until we come up with a credible naturalistic theory to replace it. Do you see the shell game that's going on? Why, why does this exist? Second Peter tells us exactly why. Our world to do not be intimidated by the explanations that are proffered for the world as we know it today. What are they? They're a thin veneer. They're a thin, crumbling blindfold over the eyes of those who wish to be blind. They exist to show that the judgments of a sovereign God cannot stand because, oh, no, it's blood. It's not, it's not a real thing. The Bible isn't true. Uh, science explains otherwise. Uh, plenty of contradictions. My field says this. My field says that. No, we can explain this all by natural processes. Oh, supernatural doesn't exist. What an arcane theory. What a uh, God of the gaps argument. You know, what a, a fantastic sci uh, quasi-scientific uh, fairy tale that I can't really... You know, this is the attitude of unbelief. But it is crumbling, saints, and so gain encouragement from that fact. Why is it crumbling? Because it had no ground and no foundation in the first place. Where can you find refuge in this day as in any day? Like when Peter was writing, like when Noah entered the ark, when Ezekiel prophesied, and Isaiah pro proclaimed God's word? 
The refuge in the foundation has remained the same the entire time. Be like Noah. Heed God's Word. Therein, you will find a sufficient grounding. You won't have to change your stupid theories every five minutes to accommodate new information. But you will have a rock-solid foundation for your faith. You'll have an encouragement and a basis and authority upon which, outside and above, transcendent from yourself, by which to call others to repentance. And you will be proclaiming the gospel all the while, even as you look upon the expanse of the world that yet bears obvious, undeniable evidence of His power to create and His power to judge. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank You for the power of Your Holy Word. We thank You for the evidence of Your power, even in creation as we see it. We thank You for the mountains and for the oceans that testify to Your power to judge sin for what it is. We also thank You for the testimony of Your servant Noah, who created an ark, heeding Your uh, holy word, and thereby created a picture of our salvation to come. But most of all, this morning, we thank You for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whose blood alone satisfies the wrath that we deserved. We will not drown, as it were, in the final day in the fires of your coming judgment if we trust and believe that Jesus' blood saves us. He is our salvation. We confess this, we take refuge in this, and we hope in this, and we refuse, Lord Jesus, as our minds have been renewed by your word to heed the lies or fear the alternate theories of the unbelieving world around us. We pray rather that you would equip us to stand boldly, confidently, proclaiming the gospel to a world that is blind to the truth. Lord, I pray that you would use the means of your proclaimed word as you've done through, from ages past to awaken souls unto salvation in Jesus Christ alone. All for the growth of your kingdom, the praise of your great name, and during this seven-day grace period, as it were, while the ark of Jesus Christ, the door he himself proclaimed as the door, still stands open that we might walk hand in hand into glory with many believers that have joined us in confessing that Christ alone is their hope and stay. He is their salvation. He is their, uh, their ark through the waters of judgment. In all of this, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.